So after the week um, that this nation has just had, I thought, man, if anything that I can do to try and help us just a little bit press reset and remind ourselves of who we are and what we were made to do. And, and so we're, we're starting with that little video. Um, in, the week, in the wake of, of Tuesday's election, I don't know how many of you are coming from the political left um, versus the political right. If you're brand new here at MCC, I want you to know we have a pretty good mix of both um, at Medway Community Church. Russell Moore is a name, um, someone I appreciate a lot. I would love it if you know that name. Um, Southern Baptist Religious Liberties and Ethics Commission. I commend almost all of his writing to you. But recognizing that the majority of evangelicals break right, which will be no surprise, I think, to the vast majority of us, he said this on Wednesday. The sort of conservatism many of us had hoped for, a multi-ethnic, constitutionally anchored, forward-looking conservatism, has been replaced in the Republican Party by something else. There's a European-style ethno-nationalist populism, moral concerns, certainly personal character, and family stability questions are marginalized. We now have a politics of sexual revolution across the board. This means that conservative evangelicals are politically homeless, whether they know it or not. I think that's exactly right. But as Mr. Moore goes on to explain, that's not the worst situation we could be in. Okay, Uh, political power, or the illusion of it, has not always been good for American Christians. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from Tuesday? Moore suggests we must, quote, maintain a prophetic clarity that is willing to call to repentance everything that is unjust and anti-Christ, whether that is the abortion culture, the divorce culture, or the racism, nativism culture. We are not, first, Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or progressives. We are not even, first of all, the United States of America. We are the church of the resurrected and triumphant Jesus Christ. And so I think it's kind of neat that in God's providence, we're scheduled this morning anyway to study a text where we have the Apostle Paul stepping into a culture which is radically different certainly from his own culture, and certainly from his own value system. He's um, walking into the city of Athens, completely different worldview from Paul, totally divergent sexual ethic, religious background, virtually no knowledge of the living God in this location. So what did Paul do there? And might that inform what we are to do here? Uh, By the way, my name is Travis Bond. I serve as senior pastor here, and it's my privilege to do so. And if you have not done so, open up to Acts 17. I hear you flipping there already, so that's good. If you're not familiar with it, this is the Mars Hill Discourse, which is one of the most famous um, addresses in the New Testament, partly because Paul does a remarkable job of threading the needle. 
here. And we're going to read it in just a minute because he pays attention to the context in which he speaks without ever compromising the message he proclaims. Paul does a remarkably effective job paying attention to the context in which he speaks without ever compromising the message he proclaims. And that's really our goal, isn't it? That if we're going to be a missional church, we seek to contextualize the gospel, but never compromise the gospel. So we're in Acts 17. Um, We've been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. We'll pick it up at verse 16. Here now, brothers and sisters, the very word of our Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be the preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I got one picture and one story for you. One picture and a story. The picture is of a lighthouse. 
Not just any lighthouse, the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, Outer Banks, North Carolina. My family visited there um, several years back now, and um, it was a neat place to visit, and I learned all kinds of things. I learned this lighthouse was built in um, 1803. It was later rebuilt in 1870. Um, Over the last two centuries, it has served as a beacon of light, saving literally thousands of people from dashing themselves upon the shoals. However, in recent years, the lighthouse appeared to become less and less necessary as new technologies came forth like radar and global positioning satellite. And so this massive uh, construction project was undertaken to pick up this famous lighthouse and move it about a half mile inland where it now sits today so that tourists who mill around with cameras around their necks can visit, look up, and imagine a time when once this lighthouse was actually of use. Given this morning's text is about gospel proclamation, I suspect the metaphor is obvious to us. Um, Begg says, over the last century or so, American churches have slowly turned into something far less than a station to save lives and far more of a gathering place for religious tourism. And gradually, without it ever being the intent or the goal, a weakening of resolve here means that there's far less of a concern to save lives and far more of a concern to preserve the tourist attraction. And you know, if ever there was a context in which a man would have been tempted to just be the tourist, I mean, it was Athens, right? Um, it's not that Athens was the most immoral city there ever was, although there was plenty of that. And it's not that Athens was, for Paul, the most dangerous city that he visited. Although there was plenty of that. But Athens, you understand, this was the great cultural center of the world. If Rome was the power center, Athens is the intellectual center. Athens is Harvard and Oxford and all the great universities rolled into just one city. It was the kind of place, in other words, where a silly notion about a god who becomes a man and dies for other men, well, a story like that would just be laughed right off the stage. And and as a matter of fact, by the time you get to verse 32 of our text, it was indeed laughed right off the stage. Athens was intellectual, it was cultural, and it was as pagan as can be. One of the ancients said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man, by which he meant the city was just overrun by idols. Um, The first thing that Paul would have seen as he walks up to the city on the path there would have been this granite cliff with this giant temple at the top of it. It's the Parthenon. It's the one that we all picture when we think of pictures of Greece. Um, with the crumbling columns, except at this time, the columns weren't crumbling. It was this fantastic edifice built to the goddess Athena. The whole city was just filled with stuff like that. Altars, statues, temples dedicated to this pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. In fact, um, as a testament to due diligence, they actually also set up these different altars labeled to the unknown god just in case they happened to miss one of them. And this is the world that Paul, the rigid, faithful Pharisee, now turned Christian convert, is visiting. Um, He was there, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he was there for a vacation. 
He's just waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him after they got run out of the last town. But Paul, if if, if we don't know him yet, we know this much. The man can't take a vacation, right? Because he's walking around Athens there, but his He was greatly distressed. Verse 16, if you're reading from the NIV, the original, the Greek word is paroxenu, which means, um, I think the ESV translated, Paul's spirit was provoked. It It was stirred up by all these false gods spread out in front of him by the lies. So what did he say in that context? And how did he say it? I promised you one picture and one story. Picture was a lighthouse. Here's the story. It's 1941. A man named Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones has been invited to preach to a mostly student congregation at Hoity Toity. Oxford University. Um, If you don't know the name, Lloyd-Jones was um, a a preacher at Westminster Chapel, London for 40 years, incredible ministry, brilliant man. He was a medical doctor, became preacher, and, and honestly was probably one of the most significant preachers of the 20th century, right up there with guys like Billy Graham, incredible ministry. Anyway, he's invited to preach at Oxford, and afterwards, there's a Q&A, right? First guy up. Law student, er, and one of the le- sorry Dan, and one of the leaders of the Oxford Debating Society. So, I mean, you can just imagine this guy right from the get-go, right? So he, he stands up, and with all the polish of a, a seasoned speaker, um, he states that though Lloyd-Jones' sermon was um, offered with scholarly construction and an intellectual presentation, the theme of his preaching would have been just as well delivered to a congregation of farmers and common laborers. And then he sat down with a number of the students snickering right along with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones just smiled, and then he replied with a quote from Martin Luther. When I preach, he said, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom I have above 40 in the congregation. I have all eyes on the servant maids and the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open. (laughs) I thought, oh man, that was a bold response. But you see his point. Although the context changes. The message never does. We contextualize the gospel. We never compromise the gospel. Paul models that. It begins at verse 18. The text references these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. You can Google them if you want, and you'll find all kinds of fun stuff. Um, Let me just give you the Reader's Digest version right now. Stoics were the moralists. Epicureans were the relativists. Okay, stoic, just like we kind of use the word today, they were the button down, all about duty, obedience, not emotion, not feeling, um, self-sufficiency. Epicureans, they're like the polar opposite to that. They did not want to be bothered with things like ethics or the concept, the theory of ultimate justice. They were all about freedom, by which they primarily meant sexual freedom. In fact, they had a saying, nothing to fear in God, 
nothing to feel in death. So Paul reasoned with them. That's the first half of the text, and marketplace and all of that. Um, and in the second half of the text, he gets dragged in front of the Areopagus, which is the Athenian judicial body, and they met, met on the hill of Eris, or Mars Hill. And so that's like, I kind of want you to remember that, Mars Hill. Very, very famous address and all that goes along with that. Uh, Mars, I think, was the god of war. Um, so if you can picture it in your mind's eye here, it was right there. It was on the, the white stone of shame, and behind him there's this um, kind of back facade of white pink marble, and he's flanked by all these idols and gods, and um, Paul stood there, and he proclaimed a risen Savior. Far from turning off the lighthouse, Paul became the lighthouse, right there, in Europe's most intellectual, most pagan city. Paul preached the simple news of a Redeemer crucified and risen again to the most studied, the most intellectually curious, maybe on the planet at the time. He preached a message suitable for servant maids and children. And it says some believed. Notice how Paul did it. That's really the point here. Contextualize, not compromise. Paul doesn't start here. This is different from almost everything else we hear him do. Paul does not start here with Abraham, Moses, David. These were Gentiles. They had no idea who Abraham was. So Paul begins with whatever point of contact he can find. Verse 23, Paul says, hey, I've seen you worship an idol to an unknown God. Well, guys, what were you worship as unknown, I'm going to now make known to you. And then he tells them, not of the Hebrew patriarchs, not of the Davidic line. He starts verse 24 in your text with the God who made the world and everything in it. He says, I'm not going to prove to you this one God. I'm going to prove to you, you already know this one God. And then he just lays it out for them in our own contemporary terms how every atom, every molecule is stamped with deity before our eyes. You know, during the French Revolution, um, the radicals would try to rid themselves of religion and even to the point of ripping down the steeples um, on the Christian churches. And the Christians would say, yes but you cannot rip the stars from the night sky. All creation, in other words, bears testimony of the God who is there. My point is this, though. Whenever we're seeking to share the good news of Jesus, we've got to find a point of contact. We've got to find a starting place. Whether it's the history of Moses for the Jew whether it's the unknown God for the Athenian, whether it's the presidential election for the American, wherever we are, without compromising the gospel, we've got to contextualize the gospel. And we can't do that only in these pews. Remember my first Sunday back from sabbatical, if you were here in September, 
I put these graphs up on the, uh, the screen. Uh, real quick, gray dots are non-Christians, red, cro- uh, red dots are the Christians, and, and unfortunately, this is often how we play it, right? We all just, we kind of cluster together, and we do our Christian stuff, and we encourage other Christians, and we hang out with Christians, and we talk Christianly to the Christians, um, and far too often, that just minimizes our impact, because to be missional, to live on mission, means that on Sunday we do church gathered, Monday to Saturday we do church scattered. And you can see how that immediately transforms the opportunity and the impact that we can have around us. In the day-to-day, we have got to contextualize what we know and what we believe. Listen, I meet people on the soccer field. Um, I meet people while coaching my girls' basketball teams. And I'm not sure, particularly those of you who are older, I don't know if you fully appreciate, because it was never like this when you were a kid, that I will talk to people on the soccer field, and I might like just throw out a reference, because I'm a preacher, you know, so this stuff's in my head. I'll just throw out a reference to Noah, or Daniel in the lion's den. And they stare at me with this blank look. What are you talking about? And I don't know in this church if everyone really has a grasp of the level of biblical illiteracy with which people are walking into our doors or more often than not, not walking into our doors. Which means that we have a few options. We can bemoan that. We can ignore that. We can keep doing church like it's 1955, back when everybody would come to us because it was the thing to do. Or we can be honest and admit that Boston Metro West 2016 looks a heck of a lot more like Athens than it does Jerusalem. When it comes to the gospel message, we must contextualize without compromise. Someone in the back says, okay, Trav, I'm I'm tracking with you. I'm the red dot. I'm supposed to scatter out, but not become a gray dot. (laughs) You you did realize you're not supposed to be a gray dot. Yeah, that is the trick of it, isn't it? Okay, Trav, I'm with you. But once I'm out there, I mean, how do I even start? How do I even pivot a conversation so that it has some spiritual tone to it. where, Where do I find the point of contact? And to that question, I would say, well, that's an excellent question. That's exactly the question we ought to be praying through. So let me offer this to you as perhaps one answer, and the one that works best for me. Ask yourself, what trials and suffering am I most likely to experience between now and next Sunday? What are the ways that I am most likely to suffer myself between now, right now, and next Sunday? And I trust right now stuff is coming to your mind. 
you want to find a point of contact with your unbelieving friend, what are the specific pressures I'm going to feel? My marital strife. My misbehaving kids. Financial debt. Emotional and, and mental health issues. Loneliness. Job angst or unemployment. I mean, that's the stuff we suffer from. Which means that's the exact same stuff everyone around us is suffering from. I mean, did it, did it even occur to you this week that God handed us a golden opportunity to speak hope and breathe grace into a really broken nation? Did you just join in the complaining or the gloating or the hand-wringing? Whining and moaning about that candidate or those supporters? Or, or did, it, did it ever occur to you to square your shoulders up a little bit and speak with some level of gospel confidence that, hey, I have a God who sets up kings and he knocks down nations and it's not up to me. So listen, friend, Jesus has your house and my house and the White House in the palm of his hands. Can I just implore you for a minute before you go back on social media? Because I read you people. (laughs) And you're freaking me out a little bit. Can I just ask you, can we be a little bit more, a little, a little bit less about taking up our own side and a little bit more about taking up our own cross? Because that's going to be what is beautiful to this nation. That is going to be what sets Christ up and makes him beautiful to a, to a country that is mad and angry and desperately looking for a savior and all kinds of people are upset because we haven't found him yet. We haven't found her yet. And here we are, the people of God. We have the words of life. We have the savior of the world. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my